Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In the current debate over taxes, we hear a lot about offshore funds, the repatriation of corporate dollars, and how lowering the marginal tax rate will bring all this money pouring back and stimulate the economy. Unlikely, particularly because what we don't hear about is the almost hundreds of trillions of dollars that are hidden from view in a complex web of offshore accounts, tax havens, laundered money, corrupt banks and nations that have created a kind of alternative financial system. Back in April of 2016, leaked documents from a Panamanian law firm known as the Panama Papers began to shed light on this universal flow of tainted money. More recently, the Paradise Papers brought this corruption to the doorstep of the White House. Covering every step of it has been my guest, distinguished journalist Jake Bernstein. Jake Bernstein is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, a senior reporter on the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists that originally broke the Panama Papers story. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Bloomberg, The Guardian, and ProPublica. And it is my pleasure to welcome Jake Bernstein here to talk about his new book, Secrecy World, Inside the Panama Papers' Investigation of Illicit Money Networks and the Global Elite, Jake Bernstein, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I want to go back first to talk a little bit about the Panama Papers, what they were, and how they were leaked. Sure. The Panama Papers ended up being well in excess of 11.5 million documents that came from a Panamanian law firm called Mossack Fonseca. And this, uh, this law firm had been well, either leaked or, or hacked, the information had found its way to a German newspaper called Süddeutsche Zeitung. And they, in turn, gave it to a group called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ. And ICIJ ended up sharing with it with, with more than 300 journalists around the world who collaborated on investigating the, the data and writing stories about what they found, and then all dropping their stories uh, simultaneously on the same day in April in 2016. It's ironic, I suppose, that it was a German publication that was the first to get this. Given if we look at the history, as you outlined it, of this law firm, Mosak Fonseca, that it has these origins and roots going all the way back to Nazi Germany. I think that's, that, that could very well be part of it. Another reason was that the Germans had gotten an earlier leak of, of, from the law firm of a smaller subset of information and already written some stories. So I think that's part of the reason they came to the attention of the leaker, who remains anonymous. We still do not know where exactly those 11.5 million documents came from. The other thing is that the Germans have a long history of paying for this kind of information. The German government, not the, the media, but the German tax authorities buy, routinely buy uh, information about German private citizens, tax evaders, uh, who are trying to hide their money in neighboring countries like Luxembourg or Liechtenstein. And uh, bankers fill CDs full of information about these German account holders, cross the border, and sell it to the German government. And so there's more of a of a, of a history of, of using this kind of data and, uh, and, and being aware of it. We've long known about tax havens and about offshore money. Talk a little bit about the scope of this as it's revealed in the Panama Papers. I think you're absolutely right. We've long known about it in sort of isolated incidents and, uh, you know, little exposés or court cases, things like that. But what this really allowed for was a macro view of this world and, and how it evolved over time. 
Mossack Fonseca uh, formed in the mid 80s and there are companies actually in the data that are, are much older than that. We found a company that went back to the 1930s. So you can really see the whole scope of this system and Mossack Fonseca was doing business around the world, uh, all over Latin America and Europe and Africa and, uh, and everywhere in between. Um, so you could really get a, a, a sense of, of how this system developed, how it morphed, the differences between different jurisdictions, how it changed over decades, um, and it was all available through this data. What's fascinating in looking at the early history of Mossack Fonseca is that it sort of feels like a modern-day startup. It was a couple of guys that figured out a need, a problem that existed, and filled it in a way that gave them a kind of monopoly. You, 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 were, you were so right in the sense that they, they, their, their timing was perfect, and they had a vision, which was of a business model that was low volume, high, uh, high volume, low cost, excuse me, and kind of like the McDonald's of the secrecy world. And, uh, and they, 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 they came up with this idea right at the time where computerization made it possible to do this kind of sort of mass, wide-scale business. And also at a time when there was incredible wealth being created in the developing world, and these new wealthy people didn't necessarily trust their countries, and they wanted to get their money out. They wanted to use these, uh, these offshore companies. So they hit the moment perfectly, and the high-volume, low-cost business model worked great because when they started, really all that was required for creating an anonymous shell company was you created the company, and you didn't ask very many questions. It was, you know, think of those monkeys, right? See nothing, mm -hmm. hear nothing, say nothing. So you created this company, and then you stuck it in a file, and you forgot about it for a year until it was time to invoice uh, the client uh, to renew the company. And so you could do high volume, low cost. But what happened was, over time, there started to be new vetting requirements and new due diligence requirements, but they had already released 100,000 plus companies into the wild. So as Ramon Fonseca said to me, you know, we created this monster and then we were handed a comb and told to comb it and it proved impossible. Also, they created in doing what they did, they created a level of complexity that made them and I guess firms like them, and they really had the market cornered, essential for anyone who wanted to do business in this offshore world. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, this is, it's actually quite widespread, this business, and, and they were one in the top five. There's a lot of different organizations that do it. But really, there's, when I talk about the secrecy world, and, and it's not a, a phrase that I coined myself, it's actually a phrase that I found within the documents themselves. But we're talking about not just a system of tax havens, but we're also talking about sort of secret bank accounts in places like Singapore and Switzerland. And we're talking about the intermediaries, the registered agents who, who create these companies or foundations or trusts, but also lawyers and accountants and bankers that go to these intermediaries and ask for the companies on behalf of their clients. It's an entire infrastructure. And the ones who really want to, you know, do concealment, you know, there's lots of different layers. So you might have an anonymous company, but the anonymous company is owned by a foundation and the foundation is owned by a trust and it crosses across three different places. It's in Jersey and it's in Panama and it's in the British Virgin Islands and there's lots of different steps and you're hiding your your activities with each step a little bit deeper, making it harder for, for law enforcement or tax authorities or, or business partners or your wife to find out exactly what you're doing. 
Talk about the role that authoritarian leaders played in building up this business because they took advantage of this, particularly in areas of money laundering and getting money out of various countries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a great, that is a great insight. Uh, we, we see we saw a lot of that in the Panama Papers. I mean, say, Azerbaijan is a great example, right? And so the children of, of the ruler of Azerbaijan have property all over the country, all over, I'm saying, all over the world, you know, in London and, and different places like that, in Switzerland and Monaco, and they, and they also have monopolies of uh, certain key industries inside the country. But they need to get that money out of Azerbaijan, and so they use these offshore companies to do that. One of the most sort of interesting uh, uh, insights that we gleaned from the Panama Papers was we found uh, heretofore unknown un- uh, anonymous shell companies around, you know, with people around Vladimir Putin, including uh, the godfather of Putin's eldest daughter, a musician, uh, a classical musician named Sergei Roldugin, who had nobody even knew was a businessman, but he was uh, ostensibly the owner of several offshore companies that were doing incredibly complex and, and, and very interesting and, and high dollar business activities. Um, so this is a system that is used by rulers uh, to, 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 to deflect uh, what they're actually doing, in some cases is, is robbing the states that they control. How aware did Mossack Fonseca need to be in terms of being up to date on political nuance in the world? And to what extent were they reacting to and to what extent were they influencing some of that as it relates to offshore funds? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, they were they were very cognizant of 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 of, of different rules, you know, of, of different activities by different powers to try to curtail this business. And, and they were part of a global movement to fight back against that. So for example, the organization of, uh, of well, the OECD, right? The organization of, I can't even remember the, the full title of it, but it's, a, it's the group of, of developing nations um, that tries to sort of create rules for trade and other things. They try to, to, to curtail some of this business, you know, rein in the tax havens. And Mossack Fonseca was part of a group of, uh, of, of tax havens and intermediaries and others, uh, including uh, certain libertarian uh, Washington-based think tanks um, that really uh, launched a campaign to, to try to stop the OECD from, from reigning in this business. So they were very cognizant of that kind of thing. And then they also were very aware of, of how this... I mean, this is, that, this is a system that evolves. It's almost an organic creature, right? So one of the big uh, offerings that they had for a long time was something called bear shares. And bear shares are, are kind of fascinating because it's essentially a certificate, a piece of paper, and whoever own, holds the piece of paper owns the company. So prosecutors and governments hate this because it's ideal for money launderers. You know, I can give you a piece of paper and suddenly you you own the company and the company can hold an asset and I can move assets around without anybody knowing about it. So systematically, countries started to either restrict or outlaw completely bearer shares. Um, The BVI was one of the early ones to do that, the British Virgin Islands. And when they did that, you can see a spike 
in company and corporations in Panama, which still allowed these uh, bear shares. And so I think Mossack Fonseca was very aware of, of how this system evolved and moved around from place to place so that uh, they could continue selling this kind of secrecy. Beyond money laundering and even illegally moving money out of these countries by authoritarian leaders, one of the other areas that was part of this was the degree to which illicit activity was part of what the money was used for. It appears that so much of this money was either used for or came from things like illegal drug dealing and human trafficking. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite extraordinary. Now, the, we have to say that this, this system, system can be used legally, right? And, and even though one of the Mossack Fonseca lawyers said in an email, sort of in a moment of, of private candor, that uh, almost 95% of what they do is helping uh, their customers legally avoid taxes, there was a, a huge amount of criminality that was also involved. And we found, you know, Mexican cartels and, uh, and, 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 and Russians who were involved. So they literally had boats where they were treating people who they had dragooned into being sailors as, as actual slaves. Um, and then we, we saw a tremendous number of, of, of scamsters and, and Ponzi schemers, you know, where every, it seems like after Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, did his massive fraud in the United States, every major fraud in every country had their own sort of mini Madoff. So you see a number of them in the Panama Papers. There was the Argentinian Madoff, for example, and he was running his scam through anonymous offshore companies that were bought through Mossack Fonseca. So there were all kinds of things like that. And again, it was, it was the anonymity uh, and the lack of transparency that allowed them to do this. To what extent did tax authorities around the world, including the Internal Revenue Service, try and track all this down or do anything about it? My goodness, that's a good question. There's a chapter in my book, Secrecy World, about this extraordinary IRS agent named Joe West, who was sort of given a task of actually researching how this world functioned and coming up with a menu of ideas of how they could go after Americans who were using tax havens to evade taxes. And he came up with a whole bunch of, 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 of good ideas, and the IRS ended up doing one of them um, and, and had some success with it. But uh, Joe West was so frustrated by the bureaucracy and by the resistance that he encountered within the agency that he ends up sort of retiring early and giving up on the whole thing. I mean, the IRS, in their defense, has been savagely cut back by the Republican Congress. They do not have the resources that they need. Um, it's very hard to, to break through the secrecy behind these intermediaries, these tax havens. They do not give up information willingly. The IRS is a little bit worried about attorney-client privilege, uh, you know, when there are lawyers involved in this, in this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of obstacles. It takes great resources for governments to, to break through it, to, to track this information. And they really need leaks and whistleblowers and things like that, and, and those things don't come along every day. So it's been, a, it's been a big challenge for governments to get their hands around it. What impact, if any, have the Panama Papers had in curtailing any of this activity? Um, well, I mean, it, 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 there's been hundreds of, of investigations and, uh, and, and criminal uh, inquiries that have been launched around the, around the world over this stuff. And then there's been, you know, direct political fallout in different places. The, the prime minister of Iceland was forced to resign when it was revealed that he had a, a secret company that, that uh, Icelandic voters didn't know about. 
um, the president of Pakistan was removed from office uh, because his family was using offshore companies to buy property in London um, and, and sort of hard to explain where the money came from. Um, the, the minister of, of industry for Spain was also forced to uh, resign. There's, so there's been, there's been political repercussions in, in a number of places, and then there have been open investigations and, and prosecutions uh, out of this. And it also, I think, has, a, has raised awareness about how this, this system works. This, I mean, as you sort of said so eloquently in the beginning, I mean, this is this massive shadow economy, you know, trillions of dollars are flowing through it. And, uh, and most people are not aware of it, even though we live with the impacts in, in soaring property prices in places like New York and Miami and Los Angeles, and in taxes that aren't paid for health care and infrastructure and education and police and stuff like that. But we don't really know how this system works. And, and these leak investigations have given us a window into it that we otherwise wouldn't have. Talk a little bit about the subsequent release and leaking of what were called the Paradise Papers, what they were, and how they were sort of the next step in learning more about this story. Well, the Paradise Papers came from a law firm called Apple, primarily, which is based in Bermuda. And Appleby was very different from, uh, from Mossack Fonseca in that they were smaller and they were more exclusive. Um, so they handled a lot of corporate clients like Nike and Apple. Um, they had a lot more Americans, uh, more than 30,000, I think, were American customers. And what they were doing was generally more, more legal, more above board, um, but had in some ways the same impact. You know, they allowed, you know, help their customers avoid, you know, billions of dollars in taxes. But you see a lot more sort of high-dollar Americans, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, um, all kinds of business stripes. Um, so the Apple, Applebee kind of gives us a, a different perspective. They were not as freewheeling as the, as the uh, Panamanians. Uh, the Panamanians were much more uh, uh, open and loquacious on email. Uh, Applebee was, was more guarded and more careful. Um, but it gave us sort of a different perspective uh, on how this world works. Talk a little bit about Panama and why it became the epicenter of so much of this. You know, Panama's incorporation law was passed, I think, in the, in the 1920s, uh, uh, or, or maybe even before, maybe it was around 1919. Um, they, they cribbed their, their uh, company incorporation law from Delaware, um, among other U.S. states. Uh, they sort of copied it, and, uh, and originally it was about shipping. You know, they were pushing uh, Panama as, because of the canal as an idea for, you know, where people could register ships. Uh, and get away from uh, the kind of regulation and oversight uh, that people had if they tried to register their ships in the United States. And from there, it sort of morphed into, you know, companies for, for reasons other than ships. Um, and it really sort of took off uh, during the di dictatorship of, of Trujillo, you know, where he kind of opened up the country for money launders and for drug traffickers and and the banking system and, the, and, and offshore anonymous companies, and it sort of grew from there. One of the things you write about is the degree to which all of this money played such a critical role in both Russia in particular with respect to Putin and in China. Tell us a little about that. Well, this is, you know, interesting in that, again, it's a, you know, it's sort of legal, right, in many cases, 
you know, a sort of workaround. You know, Russians, uh, for example, uh, have been offshoring now for, for a, a quite a bit, quite a bit. You know, there was a bit of a, 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 a rush, a land rush when, when the fall, with the fall of communism and, uh, and people were, were involved in all kinds of businesses, some legitimate, not so, some not so much. And they wanted to, to legitimize these, these overnight fortunes. And uh, they also are somewhat distrustful of their government. Uh, the rule of law is, is shaky at best in Russia. And so people get their money out if they can. Um, and there's been a huge drain. I mean, Putin himself sort of ironically has castigated Russians for moving their money offshore. And China is sort of another example of this. China sort of embraces capitalism, um, but their system of government and, uh, and their, their business system doesn't quite catch up with the, the entrepreneurial uh, fervor that is unleashed. Um, and so they... They need a workaround, and the workaround is is this offshore system, and it's sort of the government kind of knows it and turns a blind eye to it, and in some cases encourages it. It allows you, say, if you want to import machinery into China, it can be very difficult, right? But if you have an offshore company that is uh, created to to buy the machinery, and then you are a foreign subsidiary instead of an actual Chinese person importing that machinery into the into China, uh, it just it's just easier to do. And so, this happened all around the developing world, where where you know they had archaic rules or they had corrupt governments. And uh, it allowed the citizens to sort of sidestep a lot of that by creating these, these, uh, these companies in tax havens. And it also allowed them to avoid paying taxes. And in many cases, if, if, if their, their, their financial uh, wherewithal was coming from, from corruption, it allowed them to hide the, their crimes. To what extent are the rules constantly changing? And, and how important is it? for those that are doing this with money around the world to really have the resources of people like Mossack and Von Seca to really fully understand the changing landscape? Uh, that is a fantastic question because this, this, this system is constantly evolving. And one of the things that has changed, and I think the, the Panama Papers is, is part of that change, is the bar to entry has, been, has, has risen a bit because the requirements are are greater now, you know, for vetting clients and things like that. And you, you have to go further afield to get the absolute secrecy that, that, that people wanted. What Mossack Fonseca was really trying to do was make this available to, to the merely rich. And now uh, I think it's become a little bit more exclusive, it's now more the province of the uber wealthy, you know, the, the truly wealthy. Um, that has been one of the changes. The other change, I think, is that there have been other avenues where people go. So whereas the British Virgin Islands was a place that a lot of people created companies, um, the, they've gotten a little bit tighter on, 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 on their demands for due diligence. And so people have moved to places like Dubai or Singapore, or money laundering has, has embraced uh, Bitcoin because it, it offers the kind of secrecy and, and lack of transparency that, uh, that is, is, is tightened up a bit in the offshore world. What role, if any, has technology played in making all of this possible? Because there's a kind of creative destruction side to all of this. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think technology has made it available 
um, in a way that uh, that was not you know possible before. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that the Mossack-Fonseca really prided themselves on. Um, you know, they felt like they were cutting edge as far as technology was concerned, um, and they really tried to systematize their business. Um, and and it also allowed them to do things like they created their own personal tax haven in a Pacific island called Nui, which is a spit of sand with 500 inhabitants, and uh, and they. They created their own Mossack Fonseca tax haven out of Nui, but the tax haven actually run out of their offices in Panama. So if you wanted a Nui company, you went to, you, you contacted them, and they had all of the, uh, the templates and, and, uh, and the information. The deputy registrar of the Nui um, ministry uh, that, that, re- that created companies was a Mossack Fonseca employee. And he had a stamp, and you hit print, and it, you know, you, once you got the name and the, and the company number, uh, it just kicked out a company in, in less than an hour. Um, and you can only really do that uh, when you have computerization. So I think it was a big factor in making this world uh, much more accessible. And is there any reason to think that this sunlight, this exposure to all of this, is going to do anything to curtail this? or just chase it somewhere else? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that the only thing is that's going to curtail this or, or reform it um, will be an active citizenry. You know, people in places like Europe and, and the United States who, 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 who recognize that there is a connection to their lives, you know, that the, the tax evasion has a, has a direct connection to you know, the services they, they receive and, and, what, and, and what's available for them, you know, and that idea that there's now a transnational class of people who are not bound by the rules that we are bound by, that most people are bound by, you know, that they, they, they have apartments all over the world and bank accounts all over the world, and, and, and they're, you know, even though they might make their money in the United States, they, they don't feel obligated to pay taxes here or, or, or pay very, you know, you know, input into society. So I think that the key thing is these leaks have, have, have sort of pulled back the curtain and we can see how this business works and, and we can see the effects of it. And so hopefully, you know, citizens will start to demand that there's more accountability and, and, and more transparency. And that's the only way it really changes. Jake Bernstein, his new book is Secrecy World. Inside the Panama Papers Investigation of Illicit Money Networks and the Global Elite, Jake, I thank you so much for spending time with us. No, thank you, Jeff. It's been great. Thank you.